York, this is Democracy Now! They want you to depopulate the Gaza Strip completely from the entire population and throw them in the lap of Egypt in the Sinai Desert. An internal Israeli government document has revealed the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence is recommending the forcible transfer of the entire population of Gaza to the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. As Israel intensifies its ground invasion and the Palestinian death toll tops 8,500, we'll speak to the Palestinian writer Leila El Haddad. She is from Gaza, as well as the Israeli historian Ilan Pape. Fifty years ago, he fought in the Israeli military during the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, but has since become a leading critic of the Israeli occupation. Then, the United Auto Workers has ended its historic six-week strike against the big three automakers after reaching tentative new deals. We have shown the companies, the American public, and the whole world that the working class is not done fighting. In fact, we're just getting started. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations Children's Agency has warned Israel's committing rampant grave violations of human rights against children in the besieged Gaza Strip. On Monday, UNICEF's executive director, Catherine Russell, briefed the U.N. Security Council on the humanitarian situation in Gaza, warning Israel's assault is killing or injuring more than 420 children in Gaza every day, a number she said should, quote, shake each of us to our core, unquote. I implore the Security Council to immediately adopt a resolution that reminds parties of their obligations under international law, that calls for a ceasefire, that demands the parties allow safe and unimpeded humanitarian access, that demands the immediate and safe release of all abducted children, and that urges parties to afford children the special protection to which they are entitled. Palestinian health officials say over 8,500 people, mostly women and children, have been killed over the past 26 days. On Monday, an Israeli warplane bombed the Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital, the only hospital in Gaza for cancer patients. The attack set part of the building on fire and damaged medical equipment, drawing a strong condemnation from Turkey. In the past 24 hours, Israeli air raids have also struck near the European hospital, the Indonesia hospital, and flattened homes in the vicinity of the Al-Quds hospital, where some 14,000 Palestinians are sheltering. Israeli troops and tanks have pushed further into the besieged Gaza Strip after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Monday refused to agree to a ceasefire. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Netanyahu's comments came as Hamas released a video showing three Israeli women held captive in Gaza. In the video, hostage Daniela Loney fiercely criticizes the Israeli prime minister for failing to prevent the October 7th attack. Netanyahu dismissed the video as cruel psychological propaganda. 
On Monday, Israel said it had freed the Israeli soldier Ori Megadish, who was taken prisoner by Hamas on October 7th. Israeli officials also announced the death of 23-year-old Shani Luke, who was kidnapped by Hamas from a music festival in southern Israel. Al Jazeera's condemning threats by the Israeli army against the family of its Gaza correspondent, Yumna El-Sayed. On Monday, El-Sayed's husband received a call from Israeli forces warning family members to immediately leave their home or be killed in a bombardment. The threat comes just days after an Israeli strike killed 12 family members of Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael al-Dadu, including two of his children and his grandson. Al Jazeera said in a statement, quote, Israel's actions continue with impunity as they attempt to silence the messenger. Democracy Now! spoke to Yumna El-Sayed last week. Homes were targeted. Hospitals were targeted. In these same areas that people were asked to evacuate. Hundreds of families who had evacuated from the north and from Gaza City were killed in those bombings. When we say there's no safe place in Gaza, we're not lying. At least 31 journalists have been killed since October 7th across the region, 26 Palestinian, four Israeli and one Lebanese. Among the casualties, Reuters visual journalist Aysam Abdullah, who was killed in southern Lebanon October 13th. The preliminary investigation by Reporters Without Borders found Abdullah and the group of journalists he was with were targeted by Israeli forces. RSF said, quote, two strikes in the same place in such a short space of time, just over 30 seconds, from the same direction clearly indicate precise targeting. To see our interview with his friend, go to democracynow.org. In Canada, crowds of protesters Monday led several sit-ins at the offices of Parliament members in Montreal and across at least a dozen other Canadian cities demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. We were joined by over 20 office occupations across the country from coast to coast of individuals not affiliated with any one organization, just individuals that represent the vast majority of Canadians who want to see our government taking action on a genocide that is being live streamed. We want an end to the siege in Gaza and we want to see our federal members of parliament acting on it as decisively as their constituencies clearly are demanding that they do. Meanwhile, in Toronto, over 100 workers rallied outside the manufacturing plant and global headquarters of the security and defense company INCAS, which produces arms exported to Israel. Protesters are demanding Canada end its weapons trade with Israel, which they say are being used for the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. In Russia's North Caucasus region, a mob of hundreds of young men stormed the runway of an airport in Dagestan Sunday evening, appearing to search for Jewish passengers on a flight from Israel. Police say they arrested 60 of the rioters. The founder of Telegram said after the attack, the social media platform had shut down the accounts that organized the mob. Dagestan's governor condemned the attack, writing on Telegram, quote, there's no honor in hurling abuse at strangers, searching their pockets, looking for their passports. On Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin blamed Western spy agencies and Ukrainian agents for the riot. The White House dismissed the claim and condemned Putin for not doing more to condemn the violence. 
Here in the United States, federal officials say there's been a spike in hate crimes and threats against Jewish, Arab and Muslim communities since Israel began its assault on Gaza in response to Hamas's surprise attack on October 7th. In New York, the FBI is investigating violent threats against student organizations, Jewish student organizations, on the Cornell University campus. New York Governor Kathy Hochul visited Cornell Monday, promising the state would boost efforts to monitor social media for anti-Semitic hate speech. In Nevada, police have arrested a Las Vegas man who allegedly left voicemail that included anti-Semitic comments and threats of violence against Nevada's Democratic Senator Jackie Rosen, who's Jewish. In Illinois, a 71-year-old landlord accused of fatally stabbing a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy 27 times pleaded not guilty on Monday to his murder and hate crime charges. The boy's name was Wadia Al-Fayoum. His mother, Hanan Shaheen, was left hospitalized with serious injuries from the assault. The landlord reportedly shouted, you Muslims must die during the attack. In Colorado, authorities say a heavily armed man died by suicide before carrying out an apparent planned massacre at an amusement park. Police say the body of the unnamed 20-year-old was found Saturday morning at the Glenwood Caverns Adventure Park wearing body armor and tactical gear. He was armed with an AR-style rifle, a semi-automatic handgun and explosive devices. In Maine, newly surfaced records show police ignored repeated warnings about threats made by the Army reservists behind last week's mass shooting, which left 18 people dead and 13 others injured. In mid-July, an Army commander was told that Robert Card should not have a weapon, handle ammunition, or participate in live-fire exercises. The commander alerted local police, but it's unclear if officers took any action. And just six weeks ago, police records show Card punched a friend and stated he was planning to, quote, shoot up the drill center where his Army Reserve unit is based. An officer performed a wellness check on Card but gave up after Card did not answer the door. In Denver, Colorado, opening arguments got underway Monday in a case brought by voters seeking to ban Donald Trump from appearing on the 2024 presidential ballot. Lawyer Eric Olson argued Trump should be removed under the insurrection provision of the 14th Amendment adopted after the Civil War. Our Constitution prevents people who betrayed their solemn oath, as Trump did here, from serving in office again. Colorado law gives these voters the right to make sure their votes will count by coming to this court and ensuring that only eligible candidates appear on our ballots. A similar lawsuit is being heard by Minnesota's Supreme Court this week. In more campaign news, Mike Pence dropped out of the race, his long-shot bid to win the Republican Party's nomination. Trump remains the front-runner in the race by far, even though he faces 91 felony counts across four criminal indictments. Meanwhile, Minnesota Congressmember Dean Phillips said Friday he'll challenge President Biden for the Democratic Party's nomination in 2024. Phillips has made Biden's age a centerpiece of his campaign, saying, quote, I think I think it's time for the new generation to rise. The United Auto Workers Monday reached a tentative agreement with General Motors more than six weeks after thousands of auto workers walked off the job for a historic strike against the big three U.S. automakers. The deal followed similar tentative contracts the UAW reached with Stellantis and Ford in recent days. This is UAW President Sean Fain. We have won record agreements at Ford, Stellantis, and now GM. We have united our membership like never before. 
We have shown the companies, the American public, and the whole world that the working class is not done fighting. In fact, we're just getting started. The agreement with GM includes a 25 percent wage increase over four and a half years, among other benefits. We'll have more on the strike later in the broadcast. And today marks the end of PEN America's inaugural Prison Ban Books Week, which revealed how prison censorship is now the most pervasive form of information suppression in the United States. More books are banned by prisons and jails than the country's schools and libraries combined. There's been a rise in content-neutral bans that require incarcerated people to get books from approved vendors and block free and used literature from family and friends. Prison officials are also citing security and sexual concerns to censor scientific and creative literature. This is Quinetta Harris, an incarcerated nurse and writer in solitary confinement in Texas. This is what Texas considers sexually explicit. A guide to perform self dressing These are pictures of our bodies to show us how to care for ourselves. Books and magazine articles for contraception, menopause, and general reproductive health care are all denied. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Top United Nations officials are expressing growing alarm over the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, as the enclave's last remaining hospitals are on the verge of shutting down due to a lack of fuel, as Israel intensifies its ground invasion while rejecting growing calls for a humanitarian ceasefire. Palestinian health officials say over 8,500 people, mostly women and children, have been killed over the past 26 days. The head of UNICEF said the lack of clean water and safe sanitation is on the verge of becoming a catastrophe. Philippe Lazzarini, the head of UNRWA, the U.N. Agency for Palestine Refugees, repeated his call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, saying it's, quote, become a matter of life and death for millions. The current siege imposed on Gaza is collective punishment. Two weeks of full siege followed by the trickle of aid last week mean that basic services are crumbling. Medicine is running out. Food and water are running out. Fuel is running out. The streets of Gaza have started overflowing with sewage, which will cause a massive health hazard very soon. In North Gaza, Israel attacked areas next to the Indonesian hospital Monday, where Dr. Moen El-Masri said the staff is struggling to treat patients. The damage has been caused to more than one area in this unit. The damage has directly led to the disconnection of the electricity line of this unit. As you know, this means no electricity for the patients and injured here, which directly threatens their lives and could lead to the death of many of these patients. In a few hours from now, the power will be cut due to the limited fuel available in the generators. Running out of fuel means power will be cut, meaning certain debt for many of the patients in the ICU, some of whom need respirators, as well as patients in the surgical suites, and patients in other units who numbered around 240 or 250. We go now to Gaza City, where we're joined by Dr. Hamam Alo, who works at El Shifa Hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza. 
Um, Dr. Allo, thanks so much for joining us. I know you've just left the hospital a few minutes ago. Uh, you told Jewish Currents yesterday, I had to stop the resuscitation of a patient who went into cardiac arrest in the dialysis unit because if she made it back to life, we had no ventilator to offer her. We have to prioritize patients who are younger, healthier. We have lost the ability to provide true care. If you can talk about the situation right now at your hospital and overall. Oh, hey, thank you for contacting me. This is not an incident I would really love to keep remembering, but this is what you just said was exactly what happened to me. As physicians, we are trained to resuscitate patients who go into cardiac arrest, uh, hoping they would make it back again to life and consequently put them in ventilators to uh, help them uh, live again, go back to life. But I had to stop my uh, co-nurses and my physicians from doing this. They asked me, why are you asking us to stop resuscitating the patient? It's like you're asking us to kill her. I told them we have no better options. No, we have no wiser cho choices because in case she makes it back to life, we have no ventilators to offer her. And if there is any, we would prevent uh, a younger, healthier, injured patient from entertaining that luxury, I mean the ventilator. So you, I don't know if you would imagine the amount of regret, the amount of sadness I'm living with since this happened with me, but I'm... I'm I'm sorry to say there was no uh, better options to go for except stopping that resuscitation. And if this tells us anything, this tells us how things are really getting worse and worse. I was talking to a, a journalist uh, a year, uh, uh, sorry, an hour ago or so, and he kept asking me, you told me a week earlier that things are bad and are, are these now the same because you're telling me Things are, are very bad as well now. I told him, yeah, this was well, probably a very strange answer from my side because things were really bad one, two weeks into war, but now they are getting really worse. We have patients admitted to emergency departments where they shouldn't be admitted, where there should be vacant beds for newcomers, for new patients. We have patients admitted to dialysis unit. You know, dialysis unit is a closed unit where you offer a service, and when you're done with your patients, you, you close your doors. But we can't do this anymore. We, we are allowing people to live in the unit, actually. Uh, and uh, we are admitting now patients who need care other than dialysis patients. Uh, the few trucks that were allowed in uh, with aid to Gazan people actually is almost nothing compared to what we need. And there was many of the contents of these trucks that were allowed into Gaza had water, gloves, and goods, and this is not what we are uh, uh, looking for. We are looking for devices, medications, things of really major help and concern for the for providing real health care for people in need. Number of injured patients uh, is increasing. The number of people with chronic medical illnesses who need regular follow-up and regular main, maintenance of and the provision of medications is increasing. We are not uh, capable of providing uh, the, the care other than 
keeping people dying from death. This is the only thing we can do. And we can't properly provide this care because we are getting, uh, uh, we are running out of medications and supply. Uh, Dr. Hamam Olo, you've said every day I see a fear in their eyes that I can't do much about. It's very painful. If you have kids, you know how horrible it is not to be able to comfort them, to ensure they're all right, to make them hope for anything beyond living one more day. Um, if you can talk about that in the hospital, which, as you said, is not just a hospital for sick people, thousands are taking refuge at Al-Shifa and Al-Quds and the other hospitals. And also, we're talking to you as you just left Al-Shifa. How do you comfort your family? What's happening to your family as you're at the hospital? I tell them at least we still have a house with the door to close. Uh, but many thousand refugees, people like us who used to uh, uh, live in dignity, have no longer houses and no doors to close to, to protect them. They are uh, surrounded by wastewater, by garbage. Uh, they don't have uh, adequate continuous supply of clean water to drink. Uh, many of them... Uh, uh, have uh, um, a lot of missing members of their families. Uh, they don't know if they are alive or not. At, I tell them at least we still have a house to live in, but they don't have. And surprisingly, my four- and five-year-old kids, they accept this as, as a comfort, as, as, as a better situation compared to those refugees living. They are living actually... In hospitals, but it's, it's not like they are living inside uh, the hospital departments. Many of them do not have uh, enough space to go into, into hospital hallways. So, so they are living around the, uh, the, the, the buildings and in the garden. So, yeah, surprisingly, my, my very young kids accept this. The Israeli military has dropped thousands of pamphlets warning people where you are in northern Gaza to leave. Um, why don't you go with your family south? And, and if I go, who treats my patients? They are not animals. They have the right to receive proper health care. Doctor. So we can just leave. The World Health Organization talked about this issue of telling doctors to leave their patients, choosing your own lives over your patients. Can you talk about that choice, since so many patients can't leave, for example, babies and in incubators? You think I went to medical school and for my postgraduate degrees for a total of 14 years, so I think only about my life? and not my patients. I'm asking you, ma'am, do you think this is the reason why I went to med school? To think only about my life? This so, is not the reason why I became a doctor. 
Can you talk about what's happening to the hospitals? Just in our headlines today, we talked about, and in the last few days, the attack on the Indonesia hospital. Uh, the Turkish hospital is the only cancer hospital. Um, can yeah. you talk about the significance of these places, both as a sanctuary, thousands of people taking yeah. refuge, uh, and for patients? Indonesian hospital is... Uh Providing health care for over uh, 400,000 citizens in the Gaza Strip. And this part of the Gaza Strip is being split from the rest of the Gaza Strip. If this hospital uh, stops providing care, so we are exposing many thousand Palestinian souls to the dangers of disease and death. Turkish hospital, with its very modest capabilities, even before war, was the only hospital providing care uh, and medications for cancer patients from around the Gaza Strip. It was airstruck yesterday. Uh, I don't know how many uh, patients and healthcare professionals were wounded. And many patients are dying now because they are not uh, safe uh, with their families to go to receive care and to continue their chemotherapy. The uh, uh, Ministry of Health has declared two hours ago also that the electricity would be cut off from Ashifa Hospital, the largest hospital representing 40% of the healthcare power in the Gaza Strip and providing services for many machine-dependent uh, patients like the ventilated patients and the hemodialysis patients. So if electricity is cut out from this uh, in this hospital, so we are um, directly deciding those patients are going to necessarily die. Ventilated patients will, will die in minutes. Dialysis patients will die in hours to days from stopping from uh, from after stopping their uh, their hemodialysis. Uh, many patients are now being treated with the modest um, supplies we have. Um, many diabetic patients are now being admitted to the hospital because of their insulin is not being kept in the refrigerator, so it's not working. We are out. We are. We ran out of many medications, um, like antifungal medications. We have a patient who died earlier this week with mycosis. This is an invasive, ugly type of fungal infection that killed her because we had no amphotericin to offer her. So my very simple answer to your question is that. This thing is coming to so many people in the Gaza Strip in hours to days. If this continues the same way it's going on. Dr. Allo, the Middle East Eye uh, reports on a baby who died, says his death certificate has been issued before his birth certificate. A one-day-old baby has been killed by Israeli bombing in Gaza. Israel— the military, uh, the government, uh, says that Al-Shifa, your hospital, is Hamas. Yeah. Uh, 
the site of Hamas uh, command and control. Can you respond to that, Dr. Allo? I've been working this hospital for over two years, and I never saw this. So um, I'm, I'm no lawyer, I'm no attorney, but um, this is how I'm simply applying. I never saw this for over two years. If this is true, I would see at least a clue. I want to ask you about the shipments of aid coming in. Normally, in normal times, if there's ever a normal time in Gaza, over 400 trucks a day. We're talking about a trickle of trucks now, maybe a dozen, maybe eight in a day. Have you ever seen this aid arriving at the hospital? And can you talk about what you need right now? Well, the exact number you just mentioned that was allowed into Gaza Strip is actually is actually what you were referring to. It is nothing compared to what we need, nothing compared to the shortage in supplies, machines, and medications we are in need for. Uh, the only thing I came just uh, as I was leaving the hospital today was uh, cartoons of IV fluid bottles. This is the only thing I saw. And I don't really know if this came uh, through uh, uh, through the uh, aid trucks in the uh, few couple of days, or that was uh, from the stores of the Ministry of Health. Of Health. In addition, I happened to ask about uh, in the in the hospital administration, and uh, what they mentioned that uh, was um, all about the gloves and goes. And this is not what we are actually only in need for. This is what maybe the least we care for, the least we are in need for. So um, this is, again, nothing compared to what we are in need for in terms of supplies and medications. Finally, Dr. Hamam Allo, um, your message at this point uh, to the United States, where we're based, um, and to the world? Actually, the message hasn't changed uh, since the beginning of this war. Uh, first, we need this war to end, uh, because we are really humans, we are no animals. We have the right to live freely. Second, um, if you and your citizens to live under these circumstances, what would you do for them? This is what we exactly would like you to do for us as a superpower country, as the United States, because you are really as human as your as your U.S. citizens are. Um, we were expecting more um, earlier, I mean, solutions for that humanitarian and healthcare uh, catastrophes and the crises. But what we are seeing uh, mainly through trucks allowed into Gaza is nothing compared to us. So we are being exterminated. We are being massively eradicated. And... Um, you pretend to uh, 
to care for humanitarian and human rights, which is not what we are living now. To prove us wrong, please do something. Thank you. Dr. Hamam Allo speaking to us from Gaza City, where he works at the largest hospital, Al-Shifa Hospital. Please be safe. I hope I will be. Let's hope both together I will be. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, we speak to the Israeli historian Ilan Pape, author of many books, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Stay with us. Every day we tell each other that this day will be, will be the last and tomorrow. We all can go home free and all this will finally end. Palestine, tomorrow will be free. Palestine, tomorrow will be free. Palestine will be free by the Lebanese-Swedish singer Marzane, who sung at an Istanbul solidarity protest on Saturday. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Internal Israeli government documents have revealed the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence is recommending the forcible transfer of the entire population of Gaza to the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. The 10-page document, which is dated October 13th, has been published in full by the Israeli news outlets Local Call and Plus 972. The document recommends transferring all Palestinians to Egypt and setting up a, quote, sterile zone of several kilometers near the border between Egypt and Gaza. In addition, the document recommends Israel then prevent the, quote, return of the population to activities residences near the border with Israel, unquote. Fears of a new Nakba, or catastrophe, have been growing ever since Israel ordered all Palestinians living in Gaza City and in North Gaza to vacate their homes and head south. On Monday, Palestinian U.N. Ambassador Riyad Mansour accused Israel of trying to depopulate Gaza. They want do to depopulate the Gaza Strip completely from the entire population and throw them in the lap of Egypt in the Sinai Desert. No one should justify our killing or find reasons to give more time to the killer. Call for an end of this assault on an entire nation. Stop the killings in the West Bank by settlers and occupation forces and the forced displacement underway there. We go now to Haifa in Israel, where we're joined by the Israeli historian Ilan Pape. He's professor of history and the director of the European Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter. He's the author of several books, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine and A History of Modern Palestine, One Land, Two Peoples, as well as The Idea of Israel, A History of Power and Knowledge. 
Fifty years ago, Ilan Pape fought in the Israeli military during the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, has since become a leading critic of Israel's occupation. Professor Pape, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you can start off by uh, talking about your take on what's happening today. You just heard the doctor in Gaza who just left al-Shifa a few minutes ago. Yes, I think, uh, Amy, it's good to be back uh, on your program. Thank you for having me. Uh, I think what we're seeing now, what unfolds in front of our eyes, uh, is a genocidal situation uh, by which people are targeted, uh, whether they are children, babies, uh, in hospital or in schools. And uh, this is a massive operation of killing, of ethnic cleansing, uh, of depopulation. The pretext for that kind of savagery is revenge for what the Hamas did on the 7th of October. But I think the real intention here is not just revenge, but trying to exploit what happened on the 7th of October to create new realities uh, and historical uh, Palestine. You called it uh, a new Nakba. I think that this is the Nakba has never really ended for the Palestinians. So it's a new horrific chapter in the ongoing Nakba uh, that the Palestinians are suffering uh, uh, here. So this is uh, really uh, a horrific situation that can only be stopped from the outside because there is no motivation inside Israel uh, to stop the operations, nor to care more about the lives of innocent people despite what the Israeli army claims to, to do uh, in the field itself. I want to play a short clip of Prime Minister Netanyahu speaking um, over the weekend. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible. And we do remember and we are fighting our brave troops and combatants who are now in Gaza or around Gaza and in all other regions in Israel are joining this chain of Jewish heroes, a chain that has started 3,000 years ago from Joshua ben Nun until the heroes of 1948, the Six-Day War, the 70th October war and all other wars in this country are hero troops. They have one supreme main goal to completely defeat the murderous enemy and to guarantee our existence in this country. We've always said never again, never again is now. And I want to play Netanyahu from last night. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Can you respond to the Israeli prime minister, Professor Pape? Yes. I think the main uh, attempt here is to make sure that people do not understand the context in which the Hamas operation uh, occurred to totally dishistoricize uh, that event, to forget about the 15 years of inhuman siege on Gaza, or 56 years of a ruthless occupation and ethnic cleansing in the West Bank, and 75 years 
of not allowing refugees to come back uh, to their homes. I think this is an attempt to Nazify the Palestinians, which is not new, by the way. The Israelis every now and then use it. If you remember, Menachem Begin uh, uh, compared uh, Yasser Arafat in the bunker in 1982 to Hitler in the bunker. Uh, the, the Nazification of the Palestinians is meant to, first of all, license Israeli policies without any consideration to international law uh, or, or human rights. And secondly, to divert us from talking about the real issue here, which is not uh, the Hamas or uh, its uh, actions on the 7th of October, but rather the situation that uh, bred this kind of violence. Uh, rather than talking about the symptom of violence, we should talk about the source of violence. And the source of violence has not changed. We have millions of Palestinians for years being oppressed, ruled and controlled by, by Israel, and they are fighting with the means that they have, uh, and this is going to go on uh, unless, of course, there is a willingness to go back to the uh, negotiation table and ask why the uh, violence erupted in the first place and what are the best ways to prevent another cycle of violence uh, in the future. There's a second reason for Netanyahu's uh, uh, rhetoric. Of course, he, he doesn't want the Israeli media or the international community uh, uh, to deal with his own uh, problems that were very acute before the 7th of October, and uh, to say this is now a situation where you cannot at all, but this is a domestic issue, you cannot uh, talk about me or my failures, this is a moment of existential uh, 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 threat to, to Israel, and therefore uh, uh, this kind of rhetoric will continue. Uh, and, and it's very dangerous, not to mention the fact that it abuses, when they use the Holocaust, it abuses the Holocaust memory, uh, because with all the horror of what happened on the 7th of October, uh, this is not the Holocaust, and there's no comparison between Palestinians who act after years of oppression and siege to Nazis who just target Jews because of their Jews. There's no comparison, this whole language is not the one to be used, and uh, uh, I think that uh, Netanyahu uh, is trying to galvanize uh, a, a very vindictive Israel behind him. And the results of this kind of policy are unfolding in front of our eyes. And we just had this horrific and very moving uh, 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 kind of report that you had with, uh, with the doctor from Gaza before me. Professor Pape, can you talk about the hostage families? Um, uh, they don't get a lot of attention what they're calling for, though they get tremendous attention for who these hostages are and the people who were killed on October 7th. Uh, but there are many. Um, for example, we interviewed uh, Noy Katzman, the brother of Chaim, who uh, was killed by Hamas on October 7th. He said his brother was a peace activist, and he himself uh, said, not in my brother's name. Um, he's called for a ceasefire. Um, and I wanted to ask you about this force of the hostage families and about the everybody-for-everybody everybody proposal. Uh, on Friday, just after we got off the broadcast, um, it said, you know, imminent major release. And some thought that Netanyahu was pushing forward with the invasion more quickly because he didn't want uh, this possibility to happen. But explain the proposal of all 
ref all hostages, um, over 200 of them, in return for all Palestinian prisoners, and who these prisoners are, close to 7,000 of them. Yes, I, I think that uh, not everybody uh, among the families, because I don't think they're all made of the same cloth, uh, but many of them uh, understand that the only way to bring their uh, dear ones back home is this kind of an exchange of uh, prisoners. Uh, we are talking about uh, thousands of Palestinians who are incarcerated in Israeli jails, many of them without trials, uh, and they are their kind of the allegations against them vary from actual participation in uh, guerrilla or uh, uh, violent actions against Israeli citizens or soldiers, and, and those who are uh, uh, incarcerated for being a member of a Palestinian organization. Uh, they are, some of them are very young, some of them are women, some of them are very old and have been there for a very long time, and some of them were just recently incarcerated uh, without trial uh, in, uh, in, in the West Bank. Um, they are all part of the Palestinian liberation movement, uh, and it needs uh, a, a very different Israeli perception of the Palestinian struggle and those who participated in its, its struggle to be able to say, indeed, this is the only way forward, namely to release all of them to the last one and receive all of the people who were taken by the Hamas in on the 7th of October. What I can tell you, Amy, which is very interesting, that former uh, generals in the Israeli army, former heads of the Israeli Mossad and uh, Shabak, the Secret Service, are supporting this kind of exchange. Uh, and, and this is a, a very important position that they are holding, and that may explain the fear on Netanyahu's uh, uh, side to let this issue extend longer, because the voices that are calling for such an exchange are not coming from the extreme Israeli left or the liberal Zionists. They are coming from some very powerful people who were heading some of Israel's most important institutions, such as the, the Mossad, the army, and the secret service. Um, will it take place? I don't know. It depends very much on how things unfold on the ground itself with the invasion that nobody in Israel gives the Israeli public any details of how it goes on. But it seems that it doesn't go as well as the Israelis claim it does. And uh, depends a lot, of course, of the international community, because quite a few of the people who are held by the Hamas have also dual citizenship. Uh, but there's no doubt, Amy, this is the only way to release the, the people who were taken on Saturday. Uh, neither Israeli commando salvage operation nor piecemeal deal will bring all the people back. This is a, 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 a situation where you can solve the problem and not delay it for another five or six years with babies and old people who might not survive a long stay in captivity. Professor Pepe, you were born to German-Jewish parents who fled uh, German persecution, the Nazis, in the 1930s. You fought in 1973 in the Israeli military. Um, can you talk about your life trajectory and how you came to write a book talking about the ethnic cleansing 
of Palestine and the response in Israeli society, your university, University of Haifa, and how you ended up at Exeter? Yes, it was, I mean, it was, it was a journey. Uh, there was no one moment of epiphany or awakening that makes you uh, actually take positions which will frame you as a traitor in your own society and definitely would leave you with no reference group in your own society. And for me, it was a journey that uh, had many important stations, such as uh, spending some time uh, as a postgraduate student outside of Israel, having an uh, Arab supervisor, uh, looking as uh, an historian who was interested in the history of my own country, in the documentation that became available about uh, 1948. So all these uh, uh, possibilities outside to meet Palestinians on equal footing, uh, to be able to research as a professional historian's a history or documentation that revealed evidence that contradicted in, in, in a very significant way uh, the narrative in which I grew upon. Uh, all this led me to a moment where I thought that I understand what is going on in historical Palestine, what went on in historical Palestine, and I saw quite clearly, at least from my perspective, who were the victimizers, who were the victim, who was the colonizer, who was the colonized, who was the ethnic cleanser, and who was the victims of ethnic cleanser. And because my, my parents came from Germany and because we lost a lot of people uh, in, in the Holocaust, exactly because of that legacy, I felt I could not be indifferent to the suffering of the Palestinians, nor did I want to be part uh, of the society that caused these suffering. And uh, I think that uh, as the years go by and the research becomes more and more uh, intensive and my understanding and, and relationship with the Palestinians become more increased and, and uh, widened, uh, I'm, I'm even more confident today than I was in the early years of my career, either as an activist or as a professional historian, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm very at peace with my moral positions toward Israel and Zionism. Uh, in 2006, that position led to pressure from my university uh, to, to leave the university and to uh, resign. Uh, so I had no choice. I had to resign and I had to leave. I was very happy lucky to be offered a position in a university in Britain, where I founded the Center for Palestine Studies. I'm still uh, a citizen of Israel. I'm still going to Israel. I'm spending time in Israel. I'm spending time in Britain and trying to divide between the two places. And I still believe that what I cherish as human rights, as human morality, is the only basis for better life for everyone concerned, Jews and Palestinians alike. Uh, in a, a state in the future that would be based on equality, with, that would not discriminate against people because of their nationality, religion, or culture, and one which will rectify past evils and would allow refugees to return and hopefully build uh, a, a state that would radiate and influence the Middle East as a whole. Ilan Pape, we want to thank you for being with us, professor of history, director of the European Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter, author of many books, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine and Gaza in Crisis, which he co-wrote with Noam Chomsky. Coming up, United Auto Workers has ended its historic six-week strike against the big three automakers. Stay with us. Merchandise.
feet with a starry plow on high Here comes the citizen's army with its first race to the sky Leading them is a mighty man with a mad rage in his eye My name it is James Connolly and I didn't come here to die But to fight for the rights of the working class, the small farmer too To protect the proletariat from the bosses and the screws Hold on to your rifles, boys, don't give up the dream Of our republic for the working class James Connolly by Block 47 featuring Gary Ogg. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In a major victory, the United Auto Workers announced Monday they reached a tentative agreement with General Motors following deals with Ford and Stellantis last week. This brings an end to the UAW's historic 46-day-long strike against the Detroit Big Three automakers. UAW President Sean Fain addressed members on Monday. We have won record agreements at Ford, Stellantis, and now GM. We have united our membership like never before. We have shown the companies, the American public, and the whole world that the working class is not done fighting. In fact, we're just getting started. On Monday, Democracy Now! spoke to Scott Hudison, a member of UAW Local 551, works at Ford Chicago Assembly Plant, is on the steering committee chair of Unite All Workers for Democracy, the union's reform caucus. Our plant was part of the uh, uh, third round of uh, stand-up strikes, uh, and the, the strategy was to— uh, you know, kind of play one company off the other, uh, looking for better terms uh, is a new strategy. Uh, in the past, they, they've targeted one company and, uh, you know, negotiated with them while the others were on hold. Uh, but the stand-up strike also had an inside strategy uh, where uh, workers that were still on the job uh, at different plants uh, were instructed to uh, uh refuse uh, voluntary overtime and try to uh, work to the letter of the uh, contract so that uh, they would uh, uh, kind of slow things down for the company at the plants that were running. So there was an inside-outside strategy to that. So that's Scott Holison. For more, we're joined in Detroit by Jane Slaughter, founder of Labor Notes, where she's covered the auto industry since 1979. Before that, she was briefly an auto worker. She's the author of many books, including Secrets of a Successful Organizer. Her recent piece in Jacobin is headlined, We Can Thank a Union Reform Caucus for the Militant UAW Strike. So, Jane, welcome to Democracy Now! Tell us what you understand these deals entail. They entail a whole lot of money. The, they will be life-changing for the, some of the lowest-paid members of the union, the so-called temps, who actually work for years, um, although being called temps. Uh, these people who are now making $17, $18, $19 an hour, uh, within four years, they'll be making over $40 an hour. So the union made a huge effort uh, to bring its lowered paid members up and to get rid of the um, nefarious tiers uh, that have been dividing the workforce in auto since 2007, 2009. And how did they accomplish this? <laughs> By striking. 
uh, and by organizing the members. Uh, the new administration has really only fully been in power since late March, but they immediately set out to try to get members involved in a way they've never been before in letting the companies know that they were willing to strike and ready to fight uh, to bring their wages up and undo some of the other injustices that had happened over the years. So they got members doing things they called practice picketing. They'd have demonstrations outside the plants. They had everybody wearing red shirts in the plant as just a signal to management that we're, we're all unified here. Uh, it was really unprecedented in this union that the members would be organized to let their feelings be known to the companies. And if you can talk about, Jane, who uh, Sh uh, Sean Fain is, you know, the headline of your piece, we can thank a union reform caucus for the militant UAW strike. Explain how this new leadership came into power. Yes, none of this would have been happening if it were the old UAW. Uh, top UAW leaders were caught in very egregious corruption. Uh, Thirteen of them went to jail, including two presidents for embezzlement and other crimes, uh, dealing with the companies in an unprincipled way. Uh, and the government stepped in and uh, uh, gave the members the opportunity to decide that they wanted to be able to choose their top leaders rather than them being chosen as in the old system, just at a convention that was very tightly controlled. So once the members had the right to vote on their top officers, they voted in this new slate. Now, this slate was called UAWD, Unite All Workers for Democracy. It was formed in 2019 expressly with the purpose of trying to get the right to vote. They won. The, they ran seven candidates for the executive board. They were all elected. And once they had a majority on the executive board, things could start changing from the top, encouraging the members also to change things from the bottom. And can you talk about the strategy used, the stand-up strikes? Yes, this was a, a way to keep the companies off balance. And boy, did it work. I, to me, it seemed like management just had no idea how to respond to this new strategy. They were used to a very ceremonial, ritualistic process of bargaining. It was the same every time. This time, Sean Fain, the president, said, we are going to not let you know what we're going to be doing next. And so they would call strikes at who knew which plant it was going to be, three plants just to start with. And they added in a bunch of smaller facilities. Then each week, new plants would be added and if a, a company was cooperating and actually giving in some things at the bargaining table, then they might not get struck that week. But if they were being recalcitrant, then they would get struck. And then towards the end, the union pulled out its really big guns and struck the most profitable plants. And that's when the companies caved. And what does the vote, when does that take place? Uh, in fact, people are going back to work. They're going back to work. The vote will take place sometime over the next two, maybe three weeks. And what about places like Tesla that are non-union? Huh. Well, it was just announced that there exists, has already been in existence, an organizing committee at Tesla. Um, the union very much, of course, wants to organize Tesla, but also all the other many, many, many non-union auto plants that exist now, as you know, Toyota, Mercedes, BMW, Nissan, 
many others have set up, mostly in the South. All those plants are non-union. And now, in my view, there's going to be a tremendous incentive for those workers to join the union once well, they see what's in the Jane contract. Slaughter, we're going to have to leave it there. Founder of Labor Notes, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now!